Good morning. Did I forget something? No, we're good. Did I forget something? What? Nothing. Y'all are still here, so I just want to make sure. Like, okay, I, didn't, <laughs> I was like, good grief! I didn't, like came up early, and they're like, man, we practiced a song, and now we don't get to do it. So. No, no, you're good. You're good. You're good. <laughs> you go away for three weeks, and you forget how everything works. So. All right. Well, we're walking through Lent. It's a six-week season where we. Go from Ash Wednesday to Easter Sunday, and this year as we're making this journey through this season, we've been remembering together. We've been remembering who Jesus is and what he's done. We've been looking at the ways that the people in the gospel stories, how they reacted to Jesus, how they responded to him. And Lent is a good season for us to reflect on our reaction to Jesus and the ways that we respond to him. So last week we talked about both the cost and the joy that comes with following Jesus. We saw that Jesus promised his followers, he promised his followers that they would face resistance, that they'd be ridiculed, that they'd be persecuted. We saw that everything in life comes at a cost and following Jesus is no different. The difference is that this world makes all kinds of promises, but Jesus is the only one who can actually deliver. So the truth is that in the end, everybody has to make a choice. The choice is pretty stark. Like, are we gonna settle for false promises and false hope? Are we gonna settle for everything this world has to offer? Are we gonna patiently endure that journey to the cross? Are we gonna trust the promise that this story ends in renewal and restoration, that for those who are in Christ, this story ends in resurrection? Everybody has to make a choice. So that's where we've been. We're gonna continue this journey today by remembering together Jesus's purpose and his mission. And we're gonna do that by reading from Luke chapter four. If you wanna take just a second and turn to Luke chapter four. Luke four begins with Jesus's baptism, not his baptism, with his temptation. (laughs) Because of his temptation in the wilderness. Luke four begins by saying that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit and led by the Spirit went out to the wilderness to be tempted. And then after that temptation story in verse 14, it says this. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. News about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. Now, as we get ready to read this next section, I want you to pay really close attention to the verbs. Because what I'm about to read, Luke is gonna paint a really specific, detailed picture. He is deliberate He is slow. We often rush when we read through these passages. But Luke is intentionally building this like dramatic tension. The scene that he's about to describe that left a huge impact on the people who were there and reported this to Luke. So listen to the way he describes it. Listen to the details. Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant and sat down. 
The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. We're going to keep reading in just a second, but this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, grateful as always to be gathered with your family in the sanctuary, in this place where we come to remember and celebrate who you are and what you've done, where we come to be equipped so that when we walk out of these doors, we are ready to embody the good news that we receive today, to be living expressions of your love, your mercy, your grace, pointing everyone we meet directly to you, walking alongside one another as we follow you. So we pray this morning that you'd open our mind, our eyes, our ears, and our hearts that we could receive this word, that it would transform us from the inside out, that it would impact every moment of every day. And we pray all this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. So the passage begins by telling us that Jesus' preaching was praised by everyone. The great hope of every preacher on Sunday afternoon. <laughs> the experience of very few preachers on Sunday afternoon. But that shouldn't be our expectation because Jesus' preaching was just different. There's a scholar named Matt Fitzgerald. I like the way he says it. He says this. He says, there's a difference between our Sunday morning attempts to get at the word and Jesus' embodiment of it. We preach by the means of grace. Jesus is grace. We point toward the love of God. Jesus is the love of God. And this must have made his preaching electric. This passage ends with the people apparently still buying what he's selling, like still buying into Jesus and his message. It says, all spoke well of him and were amazed. Isn't this Joseph's son is the quote. Now, if you go read Bible studies and commentaries, you'll quickly find disagreement about the tone of that verse. Like I was surprised by how many people read that with a sense of skepticism. Like many people read that like, isn't that Joseph's son? Like the carpenter's kid? What does he know? Or maybe even, who does this guy think he is? I don't know, as I was reading those commentaries that felt inconsistent to me. Like it says that they spoke well of him, that they were amazed by his words. So I tend to take that comment positively. Aw, isn't this Joseph's son? <laughs> I might be reading my own experience into this. Quick little exercise in biblical literacy. We do this often. We read our own experience into the text and we need to be careful about that. I might be doing that by reading this positively. Uh, 22 years ago, I showed up in this sanctuary uh, with a guitar and sandals and absolutely no idea what I was doing. Um, I was ordained and left in 2012, came back about five years ago. And in some senses, I've heard something similar to what the people said in this passage. In my case, it's been, oh, isn't that the kid who came here with a guitar and sandals and didn't know what he was doing? <laughs> but when I was announced by the committee as their choice to be the next senior pastor, even though it was overwhelmingly positive, it wasn't unanimous. It wasn't even unanimous on the committee. <laughs> because... I mean, isn't that the kid who came here with a guitar and sandals and had no idea what he was doing? And like, that's okay. Like, I get it. I was one of the ones saying that. 
So like maybe for some it was positive. Isn't this Joseph's son? For others, it was a little more skeptical. Now we're gonna continue to read and in just a minute, we're gonna find out whatever people thought about Jesus at this point, the crowd is about to make a dramatic turn against him. The same author says this, he said, this made his preaching electric, but fallen human beings are still capable of missing his point. So the scripture goes on to say this in verse 23. And hang with this, this is complicated, I'll explain it a little bit. But Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we heard that you did in Capernaum. Then he goes on to say, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. This is where it gets a little complicated, so hang with me. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, to the Israelites. He was sent to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Do you know where Sidon is? If you don't, it doesn't matter. Just know that it's not in Israel. (laughs) Verse 27, and there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet none of them was cleansed. Only Naaman, the Syrian. You know where Syria is? It's not in Israel. (laughs) All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Well, that escalated quickly. Like, I think that's why so many of the commentators have, they think skepticism and doubt had already set in before Jesus dropped a couple bombs on them. And make no mistake, that is exactly what he did. He was dropping bombs on them. And we don't have time to read the stories today, but you can go back and read those stories about Elijah and the widow in Sidon and the story of Elisha and this Syrian leper. And you're gonna find out that Jesus came home. He came to his hometown synagogue and he came to make a point. And it was a point that his hometown wasn't ready to hear. I already told you important details about those stories. They both involve God's deliverance and mercy offered not to the people of Israel, but offered to Gentiles. And not only were they Gentiles, one was a leper and the other was a woman. It's a big deal. Like we talked about this a few weeks ago, Israel in Jesus's time had a strong disdain for the Gentile world, and I'm putting it politely. Not only that, but they weren't very pro-women and they didn't spend a lot of time with lepers. These were radical stories in the time of Elijah and Elisha, and these were radical stories. It was a radical moment that Jesus brought them up in worship. But there's an underlying theme that you might not understand without going back and reading the context of those stories. Both of those stories of Elijah and Elisha, they were set in the context of Israel's disobedience. They were set in the context of God's judgment of Israel because of Israel's disobedience. And in that moment, God's deliverance and mercy was extended to Gentiles, not just instead of Israel, but despite them. 
And one author says it like this. He says, this is the reason Jesus used these stories. He said, Jesus is comparing Israel's current spiritual state to one of the least spiritual periods in their history. Jesus is warning his audience that their reaction to him will recall some of the lowest years from Israel's past. A choice surrounds Jesus, and to choose wrongly is to lose opportunity for blessing. So Jesus shows up to worship in his hometown on a Sunday, well, Saturday at this point, sorry, but shows up on the right day, and he tells this crowd in his hometown, people who had every reason to believe that they were in, who had been taught all their lives that they are in. And he shows up and he tells them, he reads some stories that remind them that they might be out. Just like the Israelites in the time of Elijah and Elisha were out. Because they had separated themselves. They had set themselves apart, not from the world. They had set themselves apart from the work that God was doing in the world. That's why the crowd was so mad. That's why they went to throw him off the cliff. It was dramatic, but it wasn't his time to die yet. But it's not just that. All of this tension was actually set up in the passage that he chose to read from Isaiah. And you have to remember, back then the scrolls had no chapters or verse numbers. There were very few spaces between the words because they wanted to save space on the papyrus. So he scrolls through this entire scroll just to find the words that he read. So I'm gonna read those words to you again. This comes from Isaiah 61. Some of it comes from Isaiah 58. Jesus chooses this to read. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So quickly, let's work backwards. Verse 19, it's a clear reference to the Old Testament, to Leviticus 25. If you look in your Bibles, you'll probably see a footnote that tells you that. In Leviticus 25, the Israelites are commanded and like, Listen to what I'm about to say. They were told by God that every 50 years, they were to cancel all debts, they were to release all prisoners, they were to return all property back to its original owner, including land. It was called the year of Jubilee. It became later known as the year of the Lord's favor. It's a total reset, total renewal, total restoration. It was a radical moment. No matter how low things got for you and your family, everything was to be restored. You just had to make it 50 years. (laughs) At least that was the plan, according to God's word. The reality is Israel never did it. Like as far as we can tell from historians, theologians, and rabbis, Israel never once actually observed the Jubilee. We can judge them for that, but we also maybe could understand. Like what would happen today in our world if we canceled all debts and returned everything to its original owners? Like I can't even conceptualize what that would mean. Who's gonna be fighting over whether they're the original owner or not? Like I have no idea. All I know is that in a consumer-minded culture like ours, it would be absolute chaos. Things weren't much different back then. But here's the thing, Jubilee wasn't just about resetting the economy every 50 years. It was about making things right. 
It was about pointing forward toward a day when everything would finally be made right once and for all, forever, not just every 50 years. It pointed forward to a day where there would be no more debt slavery, where a family would never again have to make the choice between feeding their children or selling off the family estate that had been passed down from generation to generation for a fraction of what it's worth just because they're desperate. It points forward to a day when creation itself will be restored and returned to its rightful and original owner, which is who? God himself. So in that synagogue in Nazareth, Jesus comes and he tells everybody that his purpose is to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the oppressed, and that the year of the Lord's favor has come. Do you think everybody was happy? Like the question that his wrestlers were, his listeners were wrestling with, if it's really time for this, what do I stand to lose? Like who benefits when the day of the Lord comes? Will a radical reset of all things like this, will it benefit the rich or the poor? Who's gonna experience great joy when that day comes, those who trust in God or those who trust in themselves? So a lot of people and many scholars, they take all this to to mean that, that Jesus had some kind of special favor for those who lived in poverty. And in contrast, that there's something inherently wrong with wealth and that Jesus' sole focus was on to balance everything and take care of those who lack material things. And look, Jesus does clearly have a special compassion and concern for the literal poor. We should as well. But that's not what the gospels mean when they speak about rich and poor. Poverty and prosperity are the contexts that Jesus uses to make a deeper spiritual point. You can think about it like this. Our culture tells us. What does our culture tell us? Like, you're the author of your own destiny, right? Take control of your life, take the reins, make whatever you want of your life, you make your own way. And listen, not that all of that is necessarily bad. Like Paul tells us in Thessalonians that we're to work hard, we're to provide for ourselves, that we're not a burden on anyone. The problem is I think the tone in which this comes from our culture, look out for yourself, make your own way, it might very well be a foothold that the devil can use to grab on and manipulate us. Because I think what we know is that those with means and opportunity, those typically considered to be rich, they're more easily tempted, more easily, more likely to internalize and apply that cultural message to look out for number one. Those who experience wealth and prosperity, they often end up trusting in themselves more than they trust in God. C.S. Lewis dealt with this in the Screwtape Letters. He talked about how things like Comfort and prosperity can actually be used by evil to turn us away from God. In that book, Sprutate, this demon, he reminds his demon nephew, Wormwood, he reminds him this. He says, do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. The enemy in Sprutate letters being God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into nothing. Do you, see, like, do, you see the, do you see what he's saying? The point is not go from God's side to the devil's side. What is the point? Just get him as far away from God as you can. 
Murder is no better than cards, like gambling or playing cards. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turning, without milestones, without signposts. The gospels call rich those who rely on themselves rather than on Jesus. Those who put their kingdoms first rather than his. Literal wealth and prosperity can give us a false security about life and it can mislead us about the truth of our soul. It can blind us to the reality that we are slowly slipping away. Jesus said, I came to give sight to the blind. Those who the Bible calls poor, they have a benefit because they're free from the delusion that they're in control of anything. And it is a delusion that we are in control. Anyone ever unexpectedly lose a job? Someone you love diagnosed with cancer? Y'all, we are not in control and we know it. We pretend, but we know it. And we don't like to hear it, but I'm telling you, accepting this is good news. I am not in control. God is. Thank God. The truth is that we are all spiritually impoverished. And the good news is that Jesus came to proclaim good news to the poor. We are all spiritually in poverty. Only some of us realize it. And realizing and admitting our spiritual poverty, that's what makes us better prepared and more ready to turn to God. Like maybe you could say it this way, and I think this is how it plays out throughout the rest of the gospel story. Uh, Jesus offers forgiveness and grace to the, to the rich, the self-reliant person. They might say, Jesus offers forgiveness and grace, a future that I deserve but don't need. The poor person who recognizes the poverty of their soul would say, Jesus offers forgiveness and grace, a future that I need but don't deserve. Only those who recognize their poverty are ready to receive it. Those who don't, who think they can work it out on their own, they'll reject him, as people have always done, because we are often convinced that our plans are better. This is why they rush to throw him off a cliff, and this is why they'll be in such a hurry to have him nailed to a Roman cross. Now, this is his purpose. This is why he came, to bring humanity to a moment of decision. This is why he taught us, he gave us the gift. He taught people who say, my will be done. He taught us that we need to pray, thy will be done. That is not the prayer humanity wants, but it's the prayer we need. Because it's the prayer that pulls back the curtain on our self-reliance and it turns us back to him. How many people are still convinced that they can save themselves? How many of us? How many of us are so easily convinced that this world is offering something better than the gospel? Can we see the truth and turn to him as Savior and Lord, place him on the throne over every part of our lives? Can we follow him into a broken world around us? That's the decision. And it's one that every human has to make. 
Worship invites us to reflect on these questions and to just be really honest with ourselves and with Jesus. This table that we're gonna come to in just a minute, it gives us the opportunity to lay all this at his feet. There's 613 commands in the Old Testament, right? Jesus sums it up by telling us to love God and love others. Those are his commands. He calls us to follow him. He commissions us to make followers of him. Our job is to trust him and obey. And listen, attendance at church, being here, it's good. Don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. Attendance is good, keep showing up. You should come more often. (laughs) But y'all, attendance is not obedience. Obedience is when followers of Jesus proclaim the good news to the poor in spirit and then invite others to follow me as I follow him. Jesus is inviting you to embody his way as you go throughout life. He's inviting you to take his mission with you everywhere you go. That's why it's called a (laughs) co-mission. You are co-missionaries with Jesus through the power of his spirit. We are co-missionaries together. So before we come to this table, I just wanna offer you a couple questions. Scripture tells us that we should examine the state of our soul before we come to this table. So I just wanna give us like a minute to do that. Just a couple questions, a couple ways that you can examine your true reaction and your true response to Jesus. The first question Have you recognized your own spiritual poverty and accepted the good news that Jesus came to proclaim? Have you accepted that salvation died on a cross and walked out of a tomb so that you could have life to the fullest? If the answer to that question is no, if you will be honest about that, then this is the most important day of your life because you have the opportunity to say yes. And if you want to, you can come talk to any of us. And if you find somebody after worship, maybe a few of us can hang around up here at the end of the service today. But even as you go out about your week, if you find one of us and maybe you find somebody who doesn't feel equipped, doesn't feel ready to walk you through it, they'll help you find somebody who is. If the answer to that question is no, y'all today is like, it's just the greatest day ever because it's the opportunity to say yes. For those of you who have accepted this good news, who have received this gift, I have a couple questions for you too. Are you being discipled? And are you discipling someone? Y'all, that is the only mission he gave us. It's the only thing he told the church to do. Be his disciples and go make disciples. And to be discipled, it's simple. All it means is follow someone as they follow Christ. That's it, that's what Paul said in the letters. Follow me as I follow him. Be an imitator of me as I imitate Christ. Are you being discipled? By who? And if you're being discipled, are you discipling someone in turn? Have you invited someone to follow you as you follow Christ? And listen, maybe you don't feel equipped. That's the objection that we hear all the time. I am telling you, you have everything you need if you are a follower of Jesus. 
God doesn't call the equipped. By his spirit, he equips the people who he calls. And for those who are in Christ, the spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you and is chomping at the bit to work through you. It takes no more training than that. If you are following Jesus, you are qualified to invite one other person to follow you as you follow him. It is not about following perfectly. If someone is following you as you follow him, you're gonna mess up and that person's gonna hear about it. They should hear about it because it's not about being perfect. It's about being repentant. It's about trusting. It's about being obedient to our Lord and Savior and learning day by day how to exercise that obedience over every part of our lives. If you're ready and recognize that you need to be discipled, that you need a name, you need someone to walk alongside you to help you seek Jesus and his kingdom, let us know. We can help you find someone. If you're ready to take on the commission, if you're willing to be a disciple maker, let us know. We can help not only by pairing you up, but we can encourage you and walk alongside you as you say yes to Jesus' call in your life. Listen, for all of our programs, for all of our ministries, which are good, this is why the church exists. This is the only mission Jesus gave us. This is why our church has made the Great Commission our official mission statement. We didn't need to write a new catchy one for ourselves. We already have one. But it's time to take that statement and make it more than words. So have you received the free gift of salvation through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? If so, who's discipling you? Who are you discipling? Y'all, this is the goal. And this is the ultimate measure of success for any church. When every person can answer those questions with a yes and a name. Before we go to the table, let me pray. Father, I think when we come to encounter Jesus, um, maybe we're not always ready for what we find or for what we hear. Those people in those, that synagogue in Nazareth, I don't think they were expecting the hometown kid to come back and challenge them in such an open way. But Lord Jesus, that's what you came to do. You came to challenge us. You came to challenge the way that we look at the world, the way we understand the world and our place in it. You came to challenge the way that we live and move in the world. And you didn't just come and stand off and criticize, you came and showed us the way. Like you showed us the better way. You made the path open so that we could experience life to the fullest now and forever. And you walked that path yourself. You took upon yourself the judgment of God that Isaiah 61 talks about so that we could experience the year and eternity of the Lord's favor. So God, it's our prayer that we would be a people who not only know that, but have internalized it in such a way that it just flows out of us. It is a part of who we are. That we become so fluent with who you have done, for, with who you are and what you have done, 
that our lives embody it. Our words testify to it. And that would give us the courage and the strength to invite others along for the ride. So as we approach this table, we just take a moment in silence, just each of us to examine where we are, to be honest with you about it, as if you don't already know, to be honest with ourselves, to come and leave all that shame and all that guilt at this table, the exact place that you invite us to come and leave it, inviting sinners to a place like this to enjoy a feast that you have made. Inviting us to leave our shame and our guilt here so that we can receive your grace and take it with us into the world. We cannot do this. It is only by the power of your spirit and we pray Holy Spirit come. And we pray all this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said.